0: Welcome to Burned by Books. I'm your host, Chris Holmes, Professor of Literature at Ithaca College. This week's show features an interview with one of the most dynamic American novelists working today, Katie Kitamura. One of the extraordinary things about hosting a podcast where I interview writers is that they tend to gush about other writers they love to read. Such was the case with Kevin Wilson, who flagged Kitamura's work for me. Soon after reading her first novel, The Long Shot, I was asking my local bookstore for everything she had written. With four novels and a travel memoir, Katie Kitamura appears to be at the beginning of a long and productive career, but already her work draws comparisons to Rachel Cusk, J.M. Kutsia, Claire Massoud, and others. Her two most recent novels, A Separation and Intimacies, are, according to Kitamura, the closest expression to what it feels like at the moments I'm trying to navigate everything that's happening around us. And in that way, they are novels of thinking in action. Characters grapple with relationships and difficult judgments, and an interior life emerges that is as rich and textured as the physical world around them. Intimacies is a puzzle of scale. A translator must make clear the crimes of an accused former president of an African country while seeking clarity in the enigmatic nature of her love and friendships. The resulting novel is both a thriller where all violence occurs offstage and a portrait of a young woman seeking a home in the company of intimates. Intimacies is my favorite book of the summer and I am thrilled to be able to present my interview with Katie Kitamura. She does not disappoint. Welcome back to Burn by Books. Katie Kitamura is looking for a fight, Her debut novel, The Long Shot, is a hard as a fist story of Cal, a once-great fighter who travels with his cut man to Tijuana for a rematch with a monstrous man against whom he is certain to lose. The last 20 pages of that novel are as excruciating as they are beautiful in the spareness with which a man's battle for dignity is described. Kevin Wilson on this show called The Long Shot of the five best american short novels the fight is seething just under the fertile farmlands in kitamura's second novel gone to the forest where two white farmers consider their fates in a rapidly unwinding political situation in an unnamed post-colonial country in the novel that brought kitamura a global reputation a separation that fight has already happened Perhaps a thousand times before the narrative opens on a woman who has been sent by her mother in law to fetch home her estranged husband, Christopher, from a Greek isle. When she arrives and finds him properly missing, the story of her disquiet in her marriage intertwines with the increasingly ominous disappearance of her husband. The resulting tension plays out like a silent scream as evidence of Christopher's carelessness in his assignation with a woman on staff at the hotel, combines with signs that he may have been assaulted or murdered. While it appears on the surface to be a secondary detail to the story, a separations narrator is a translator, and that mindset, reading the details of the world for secondary and tertiary meanings, explains much of how she processes the scene that unfolds before her. Translation as a means of comprehending violence, emotional and physical, comes to an apex in Kitamura's newest novel, Intimacies. The translator in question has moved to The Hague to take a job translating for the International Criminal Court. The job brings her into proximity with an accused war criminal and deposed president of an African nation. The difficulties of making comprehensible the untranslatability of large-scale political violence shake the principles by which the narrator lives her personal life. The threat of violence sits always in the wings, waiting to rush on stage as we learn of a senseless attack that leaves a friend's brother scarred and of the unspoken dangers of her love life with a married man who leaves her to live alone in his apartment, while he reconnects with his estranged family in Lisbon. The abiding sense of danger that washes over the narrative stands in contrast to Kitamura's style, which is perfect perfected minimalism. Nary an extraneous word, a translator's dream text. Vulture magazine's literary critic, Molly Young, describes the style as an enthralling austerity. Quote, I couldn't figure out how she pulled it off even after I read the book twice with a pencil in one hand. How did she make so much happen with so few words? Kitamura's novels are, for this reader, grappling with the universal discontent of the human condition, namely, that no matter how adept we are at deciphering the words and stories of our intimates, they remain enigmas to us to the end. Katie Kitamura is on the faculty at the Creative Writing Program at New York University, and she is a practicing art critic. It is my pleasure to welcome Katie to the show.
1: Chris, thank you so much for that really beautiful and thoughtful introduction. I've, I don't think I've ever heard my work assessed in that way, and it was really such an honor and a privilege. And thank you for having me here. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Thank you for being here. I want to start, um, with a question about what I see as a, a thread drawn through your work. I think of you now as a chronicler of the mysteries of the institution of marriage. <laughs> your, your novel, A Separation, does this explicitly with the story of a woman whose estranged husband goes missing in Greece. And in Intimacies, the decomposing of a marriage off-screen is the parallel pathos to the drama at The Hague. In your depiction of marriage, there's the assumption that one will never really know the true nature of one's partner. What has drawn you to return to the dark corners of marriage in your novels?
1: Thank you so much for that question, Chris. Um, I think possibly the answer is in the very phrase that you use, the institution of Of marriage and I think one of the things about marriage is that we think of it as a realm of almost the ultimate intimacy and privacy between two people Um, but it is also an institution and it comes with a set of expectations Mm -hmm. and it fits into a larger culture and kind of social structure and that tension is something that's really interesting to me and I think is something that i come to a lot in my work not just through marriage but in in all kinds of ways the kind of disconnect between our very private experiences and then the way those experiences need to be contextualized within a larger social context and through larger social institutions and I think marriage is one of the ultimate is one of those institutions where that conflict or that contradiction is is most palpable you know it's as I said it's it's a it's a contract between two people, but it's also a contract um, with society at large, and so it's a lot of fun to think about what can emerge out of that.
0: Yeah, and, and now that you're you're sort of focusing on that institutionality of it, it makes me think that the match with the, the work at The Hague is even, even more interesting because there is a, a contractual element to The Hague that is so in flux. There's the idea that, mm-hmm. yes, we've agreed that this is a contract with the world in some way and that we will mm-hmm. um, be arbiters of, of the rules of that contract. But your novel mm-hmm. kind of un- unpacks that, so I, I love the the relationality between those two institutions.
1: I mean, it's it's funny because I think in a separation, the institution of marriage is the kind of institutionality of it is implicit in the way that she is performing a part, and that performance really comes under pressure when her in-laws kind of arrive in the wake of her husband's death. Mm. Um, but I wanted to see if there is a way to create a kind of implicit parallel with a with a genuine institution um, which is in intimacies is is the court um, and I think you're right that contracts is one of the ways that I kind of try to enter into that parallel but I think it's also again in this question of performance one of the things that really struck me when I went to The hague and I sat in on a trial at the in- um, International Criminal Court which is the novel's not meant to represent the International Criminal Court but in a lot of aspects of it are borrowed from the ICC and so I did a lot of my research based on that institution and when I sat in on a trial I realized of course that it's an incredibly um, performative space and everything is calculated within the space of the courtroom everything is a kind of performance and that contradiction between um the incredible, incredibly personal and um, matters of in which authenticity is really of of utmost importance, that contradiction between that artifice and that authenticity was really interesting to me. So I think for me, marriage and as an institution, part of this has to do with performance. And Mm -hmm. I was really interested in the different parts Mm -hmm. that these characters are playing, um, both in their professional and their personal lives.
0: I, I believe you've said that the it's the trial of the former Liberian president Charles Taylor that was the initial impetus for sort of moving things um, in intimacies to the Hague. Um, what drew you to his case?
1: I mean, it was so the the figure in the book is is not based on Charles Taylor; it's based on Lohom Badbo of Cote d'Ivoire and. Um, the kind of particularities of the case that appear in the novel are quite closely aligned with Mm. the Ivory Coast case. But the kind of seed of the book came about when I was listening to the radio back in 2009 and I heard Charles Taylor speaking in his own defense at his own trial in The Hague. Um, And that was really the seed of the book because that experience of hearing him speak was so deeply unnerving and destabilizing to me. He is, as I'm sure you know, a very gifted orator. He is incredibly good at rhetorical flourishes and devices. He was able to, even in the very short time span that they were playing his clip on the BBC radio, he was able to seem almost plausible. So rationally, you understand that he's done everything he's accused of. He's monstrous he's egomaniacal all of those things and yet at the same time the way he was able to manipulate language the way he was able to really turn in a performance highlighted to me the extent to which language can be um pliant and manipulated Mm -hmm. and made to serve a moral cause that you might stand very much opposed to Um, so that kind of ethical gray area was really the space I wanted to try to inhabit in in Intimacies when I was writing it. I think also the novel is really concerned with complicity and implication. And part of that, of course, is just part of being a person in the world, particularly in the last kind of five years, say. Um, But I think it's also even back in 2009, I had the sense that what Taylor was doing was not wholly unrelated to what a novelist does in their own work. And that was a time in my writing when I was very aware. It was relatively early in my... I had only started writing fiction quite recently, but I was already aware of how you can use style and language to create a certain kind of emotional effect for the reader. And I guess I had mixed feelings about about what that meant um, mm-hmm. and how that can divert you in your own writing, it can divert you away from the truth of what you're trying to say, you can quite easily get diverted from truth in the style. So I saw a little bit of a link between that experience and my own feelings about writing fiction.
0: Well, that I mean, that comes across really strongly to me as as a reader. And, you know, the narrator translator um, in Intimacies defines the ethics of her work at the court. Um, in a way that I think of as as would be familiar to George Orwell in the politics and politics in the English language. And she says of translating the president's purported crimes, quote, I would not obfuscate the meaning of what he had done. My job was to ensure that there would be no escape route between languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to, to match really well with this idea of your... Um, Anxiety or apprehension at the kind of Charles Taylor style of um, of literary embrace.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really easy as a writer to there's there's a kind of very silly uh, thing that I end up saying in workshop, but I think it is true when I'm teaching, which is you know you say you, you can come across a really beautiful phrase, but then you have to ask you know what does it mean. And is it true? And often the beautiful language barely means anything, <laughs> and it doesn't mean anything that's true. And that—that's a kind of litmus test that I—I've I've really, I think, I've now pushed myself to the point where I, I don't write the beautiful phrase that doesn't mean anything. I—I I can stop mm-hmm. myself before I write it, but I can feel it coming on, and it's—it's it's a kind of—it's a device. It's often quite vague. It often sounds very, very good. But it often doesn't actually mean anything. And even when it does mean anything, it's not clear that what it's saying is true. So I would rather write a sentence that is a little awkward or a little bare or not, you know, that doesn't have a fantastic metaphor at the heart of it, Mm -hmm. but that is trying to speak directly to whatever thing it is I'm trying to explore or express.
0: So that to me sounds almost exactly like uh, Orwell's ethics in that in that essay. And in particular, the his what he sees as an almost criminal interest in the beauty of vague phrases. It's something I feel like I'm horribly guilty of as a writer. And a turn of phrase starts to be more important than a, a, a point of meaning. And I would think that for translators um doing work especially like the work of the criminal court that has to be on their mind because defendants are going to be performing as you say and that performance will be linguistic and if you allow that to in your words obfuscate what actually happened the physical crime that's being um being talked about then then you you you're you're a perpetrator yourself, you're, you are complicit in some way.
1: Yes. I mean, I guess there are two things I want to quickly say. One is I, I, I sound like such a kind of, pleasure (laughs) denying and you know i I mean i think it's impossible to write if you're not writing to your pleasure right i mean Mm -hmm. i think that it's hard to to keep sitting down every day day after day and and returning to the same manuscript if some part of you doesn't want to be inside that world and i think for some writers the thing that draws you to the manuscript to that world is language and style um so I I respect that and I really understand that. But I think for me I, I I've I found a way to locate the pleasure elsewhere. Um, I found a way to find other things that interest me in the writing, mm-hmm. and hopefully those things will change over the course of, of. Hopefully, I hope I will get to write more books, and I hope that that interest moves because I think that's really how you you develop and change and and shift as a writer. Um, with with regard to what you're saying about interpretation I, that's absolutely the case and you know one while i was doing my research i interviewed a number of interpreters and one of them was telling a a story about how a colleague of theirs had met, made an error in interpretation and it meant that the entire testimony was thrown out.
0: Oh my um, goodness. So the, oh wow. Yeah,
1: so the, the, the consequences are, are very, very high. One thing that was really interesting about meeting the interpreters is I think I had, when I started thinking about the book, a very clinical sense of what an interpreter would be. And I imagined it as a space that was relatively denuded of emotion. And mm. in that sense, maybe I thought it was going to be almost a verbal version of what a translator's work might be. But just as in the way that a translator is really rewriting a text in a new language and authoring that text in another another language, the interpreters, when I met them, were incredibly charismatic, um, exuberant almost people. They, They were very comfortable occupying space. And I realized that part of their work is also performance-oriented. So language has its specific meaning that is in the words, but it also has its meaning that's created by inflection and context. So, for example, if somebody says something ironically, that has to be transmitted some way in the interpretation because obviously an ironic statement cannot be taken at face value. So I think they're having to make all sorts of very rapid judgments when they are doing their work because they have to get as much meaning as precisely as possible from the originating language into the language they're working in. And so that that la- the, the fact that that might come about through a kind of performance element or through a kind of artifice or theatricality was one of those contradictions that I think is really a part of how a court of justice works. Um, but that was something I definitely had to reorient myself around when I, when I understood that.
0: I think I came into the novel with the same feelings about the, the work of the translator in that kind of context. But what you do remarkably is to show, one, how... nerve-wracking the the process can be and how the -the on-the-spot decisions about both particular words and the performativity, the um, emotiveness of the language are so crucial. Um, And one of the great Dramas of it is that when our when your narrator begins to feel herself being drawn into the the ken of this um, accused war criminal, and and she finds that, uh, and this is the quote: in those moments, out of what I can only describe as an excess of imagination, he became the person whose perspective I occupied. I flinched when the proceedings seemed to go against him. I felt quiet relief when they moved in his direction. And it, it both um, made me realize how much language still has this pull on you, even when you're trying to treat it as this professional work. Um, you know, a great orator and someone who can use language powerfully still can, can pull you in their direction and pull you to um, empathize with them. But it also felt to me like uh, in and you've already been sort of talking in in this general direction about the way that a novel can forge these empathetic attachments between the reader and reprehensible or at least highly problematic characters and it sounds like you were considering that connection
1: yeah absolutely i mean empathy is for me a little bit like intimacy in that we are really conditioned to think of it as wholly a desirable trait mm, or a thing. That's true, that's true. Um, you know, we we think about intimacy as something that we seek out in our relationships with other people. I have small children, you know, the, constantly the kind of question of the empathetic child, you're trying to teach your children empathy. It's just part of it's in the culture. It's really, we are conditioned to think of it as a desirable thing. But one of the things in the novel that I wanted to think about is is the question of is empathy always desirable? Is intimacy always desirable? Obviously, in the case of intimacy over the course of the novel, as I was writing it, I realized there are so many instances where the intimacy that is imposed upon the central character is actually a kind of violation and it's a kind of violence. And the novel is full of instances of sexual harassment and sexual intimidation. So it it is a multifaceted word. And similarly, she undergoes a feeling of empathy almost against her will, and it is for her something that she would actually rather guard against. Um, and and that is a kind of key moment for me is that despite herself, she is drawn in against her better judgment, against her defenses. Um, in terms of how that relates to to writing fiction, I think I'm always fighting a little bit against this, the tyranny of empathy. <laughs> there are a lot of different devices that i think i use in my fiction you know the the narrator you get very little backstory very little you don't get her name Mm -hmm. um you don't get that much information about her and i think a kind of more a standard way of creating an empathetic character we are taught or sympathetic character which is an even more sinister (laughs) but but you know it's a great backstory, and you give them some fact of their backstory that makes them sympathetic to them. Um, I I am not comfortable doing, and I think I like to write characters who are operating a little bit at a remove from from the reader, where not everything is being disclosed, not everything is being shared. Um, and I think in part it's because I'm a little bit wary in my own writing, you know, not in other people's writing, because again, my experience as a reader is very distinct to my experience as a writer, but in my own writing, I think I'm always fighting against the empathetic tendencies of fiction, which is, it is designed to put the reader in the head of another, of a character, Mm -hmm. of several characters sometimes. Um, And I think I'm, I always find myself working against that. That's a kind of tension that's in the writing for me. When I find a moment where I can see that it's, and I think maybe to double back on myself a little bit, this does link to, what I was saying earlier about language and manipulation and the creation of emotion on the page, I think this. there are moments as a writer where you can see this, this will make my character sympathetic to the reader or here's a moment of exposure or here's a moment where the central character is sharing something that will make her sympathetic. And I find myself often fighting against those moments, just intuitively.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. And I think of, like, very recent and also classical examples in which we are um, drawn by these constant um, moments of catalysts to empathy um in the text to characters who perhaps don't deserve it so in jm could disgrace um david laurie um there are these moments especially at the end when he's carrying a um you know a dog to what will certainly be its um its death uh Mm -hmm. and and we're we're led to see that as a, a kind of symbolism that that can be an umbrella category over all of his actions. And similarly Mm – you know, Satan in Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost. Um, his perspective is the one we occupy, and therefore, you know, Stanley Fish famously said that we're, you know, we're surprised to be in in the midst of sin, um, and yet we're we love to listen to him describe his his shield and his minions. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I think that uh, it it makes a lot of sense to me the way that you are um hesitant at least to to want to draw those in that kind of explicit way um but yet mm-hmm. of course i as a reader i felt great empathy for your narrator but it was more because of the process of her thinking through complicated problems in her life than mm-hmm. because of discrete vis- visual elements to that life that would cause um, an empathetic impulse?
1: I mean, I think having, you know, now I'm about to contradict myself. <laughs> 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 I mean, I, I think that the way we come to know characters best is by seeing how their mind works and seeing how they see the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that always brings me to sort of the perspective of a character rather than some piece of backstory that's kind of artificially inserted into a text to make me understand why the character is the way they are. I think it's, for me, it's really a kind of much slower process of inhabiting um, their view and seeing the movement of their mind with all its contradictions and circles. And that's certainly something that I'm always thinking about trying to get on the page. But having said that, you know, there are a number of very, I would say, charismatic Male figures in this novel, almost all of whom are morally suspect. <laughs> and Indeed. As a writer, I had I had so much fun writing those characters, and I do think that pleasure shows. I remember my my husband, who is also a novelist, read an early draft of the novel, and there's a character who is a kind of charismatic, lying bookseller. Mm. Um, and he, and who was much more present in the draft? And he said, "You love writing this character so much. You're having so much fun. It really shows on the page, but it's actually pulling the novel askew. It's kind of altering the balance of it. And you've got to mm-hmm. pare him back. So I had to cut many, many, many scenes of that character. I was having so much fun when I was writing the first draft. I really let myself get drawn into the kind of charisma." As I as I felt it that that character had and I think you know you can see that happen to to writers as well and and sometimes it is the right choice to really go with that and to follow that all the way and um, to indulge in that pleasure but in the case of this particular novel it felt like a mistake and so I had to pair him back
0: you were giving Satan too much screen time Um <laughs> yes, exactly. There's a tradition of modern novels with translators as protagonists. The Spanish novelist and philosopher Javier Marías wrote of the translator in his novel, Your Face Tomorrow, "...a translator is an interpreter of people, of their behavior and reactions, their inconsistencies, their limits, their innocence, their lack of scruples, and their resistance." their possible degrees of loyalty or baseness and their calculable prices and their poisons and their temptations. Is this part of what drew you to the figure of the translator as narrator in two different novels?
1: Oh, I'm so glad that you mentioned Marias because he's one of my absolute favorite writers. I think he's really an extraordinary...
0: He's amazing.
1: ...writer. Yeah, I mean, I... And I I love... I've read everything that's been translated... Into English by Margaret Yorikosta. And um, it's also very fascinating to watch his evolution as a writer because I think he's changed. He changed a lot from the very, very early work. And it's he's one of these writers where it's such a delight to just see him expand upon a way of working that he found and the, those kind of middle novels, of Your face, uh, not Your Face Tomorrow, but the ones before that, A Heart So White mm-hmm. and Tomorrow in the mm-hmm. Battle, Think on Me, and the way he kind of took that model and then expanded it into the trilogy of Your Face Tomorrow, which he quoted from. Um, I mean, I I absolutely think that, I mean, that's such a beautiful quote. Um, and that's certainly something that drew me to the idea of translation and interpretation. I was interested, I guess there are two things. I, I was interested in the idea of this passage of language between people, between spaces, between, you know, mother tongue and, and, and foreign tongues. All of that was very interesting to me. I like the kind of formal quality of it. Um, I like the idea. I, I was drawn to the idea of of people who literally had words put into their mouths, which is really uh. the case with the interpreter in Intimacies, is she doesn't author her own language. And that's something that I'm also looking at, I think, in the novel that I'm working on right now, this idea of what does it mean to be steeped in language, to be somebody whose trade is in language, but not to be authoring that language entirely mm. yourself. And what kind of position does that put you in, in relation to your own life and to the scope of action that you have within your own life? So, you know, the, the passivity, complicity, these are things that I'm really interested in exploring vis-a-vis my narrators. And part of that, I think, has to do with a relationship to language and to authorship and to this kind of position of enunciation. Um, and, I mean, I'm now remembering as we speak, when I was, even in, in graduate school, I was very interested in kind of streams of language, mechanical sources of language, whether it's like a kind of radio or a gramophone. Mm. Um, and I think all of those things are possibly feeding into the formal aspect of interpretation and translation and how I can you can represent that in the text as a writer in terms of the actual psychological position of the narrators, it is absolutely, as you just read in that quotation from Marias, it's this idea that they are so, particularly in intimacies, I would say, but also in a separation, they are so caught up in the act of assessment and scanning and reading and trying to ascertain um all the smallest details of somebody's behavior. And I think that almost puts them at a distance. They become almost archaeologists of their own life. They're constantly studying it. And that makes it difficult for these characters, in my in my kind of point of view, at least in my opinion, mm-hmm. to kind of step forward into their own lives. Um, so the interpreter in Intimacies is, of course, doing interpretive work at in her workplace at the court, but she's also doing it all the time in her more personal <laughs> yes. relationship, you know, with her, she's doing it with her friends. She's doing it with her partner. She's doing it in the apartment. She's staying, she constantly is doing it. And so one of the things that I wanted to allow her to, to do in the novel is make that step from constant interpretation into actual action mm-hmm. um, towards mm-hmm. the end of the book.
0: The, um... Almost detective-like nature of the the work she's doing, thinking through everyone's interactions with her, and through even kind of sideline things like the neighborhood that her friend lives in and what it means to live in in a neighborhood that some call dangerous but that this friend says is the you know of of the nature of how communities operate um and it's that's part of the fun of it i think and i and i do see how that movement from detective to someone who can actually sort of be more present in her real life is fundamental to the arc of the novel but i still i really like the detection aspect of it
1: it's it's funny you say that i mean both the separation and intimacy is much more in a in earlier drafts it had a kind of mystery or detective or a thriller element to it which which ultimately got paired back in the edits which i think was the right choice but i'm really interested in in playing with genre and you know, a separation seems to have a kind of mystery narrative, mm-hmm. um, and in intimacy, similarly, you know, there are these crimes that are taking place around the narrator. Um, there's a mugging that kind of takes place at the at the start of the of the novel, um, and I like the mode of reading that that puts a reader into kind of opening up, you know, this kind of hypersensitivity. You're looking, you're you're in this detect detective or detection mode, as you say it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think ultimately, for me, what is more interesting is to put the process of discovery, um, to direct it inwards into the consciousness of the central characters rather than outwards into plot. Mm -hmm. So the stories are very rarely resolved in in the sense that you get a criminal who's... <laughs> apprehended and carted away. You know, it, it's very much not. You know, it was the butler in the library with a <laughs> candlestick or whatever. It be. But I i think it's 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 opening up that mode of discovery as you as you describe it that is interesting to me.
0: um It wasn't the bookshop owner in the restaurant with the no. blonde. <laughs> <laughs> It was a little. So, I have a question about the the court itself, which, as you say, is not meant to be the the Hague as as a as a real life institution, but rather to sort of borrow elements from it. I'm quite interested in how the president suggests uh, in his trial and in conversations with the translator that the court is is on its face um, not impartial and points out to the translator that her country has committed terrible crimes and atrocities. And I wonder if you think that global institutions that purport to seek a kind of international justice are doomed to operate as machines of neocolonialism, always reinforcing the tacit racial, cultural, and linguistic hierarchies of the past.
1: I mean I guess the first thing I would say is I, I tremendously admire the work of the International Criminal Court, which I think is, is is very, very important. And as you say, the the novel is not in any way intended as a critique of the international criminal justice system. I think it is intended to look at the fact that it is an institution though, um, and as such is is prey to all both the strengths and the weaknesses of any institution, hmm. and that there is such a thing as institutional bias. And I think some of that is very purely pragmatic and uh, logistical and not a result of any blindness on the part of the, the people who are you know, run, running, running these courts. But, you know, for example, in the case of the International Criminal Court, they are only able to prosecute cases... In countries who have signed the Rome Statute, and the United oh, States right. has not signed the Rome mm. Statute, so they are simply un- they do not have it's not they don't have jurisdiction to pursue any cases. Um, but it is also true that they have primarily prosecuted cases of African leaders, um, and and there's a number of reasons why that is the case. But I think you know does that undermine their authority certainly within um, within from a certain point of view, very possibly. I think it's there's a vast gap between the ideal of justice and justice as it is necessarily carried on on the ground by institutions who are necessarily in dialogue with other institutions. But I think one of the things I wanted to force myself to think about is is you know I I had a and have a pretty naive sense of 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 these institutions and i think they they i had a very i had them very much elevated on a pedestal and and i think part of the process of writing the book was thinking about how we need to not necessarily complicate but we need to deepen our understanding of how institutions function because they are a product of the society that they are operating within Mm -hmm. um in terms of if they are doomed to be tools of neocolonialism. I mean, I think we have to believe that there can be a recalibration within institutions. And that's part of what is the dialogue that's happening right now. And I think we have to remain optimistic about how this can be addressed.
0: Yeah and I I like that um the way you're phrasing that a recalibration of institutions that we um that we can think of them outside of the unstoppable grinding of bureaucracy and that there might be a way for them to have more deftness and mobility in in responding to things like that but as you say the context is like the US is is so powerful and would not give up that power to an institution like that and so the the very figures that we can point at and and say should be in front of the the international criminal court will not be and and potentially never be Uh, and that is that's not explicitly a problem of that institution because they of course would seek out that kind of justice um, but it is a problem for the context of global institutions
1: yes i mean i think possibly that's that's part of what the kind of agitation is about is is i think the icc in particular as an institution it is seen as as a real arbiter of justice rightly so um but i i think it is so Compromise feels like the wrong word. It feels like it's doing too much work. But it it operates in the real world in tandem with other government organizations. Um, But I think encouraging a kind of greater understanding of how its scope of action is necessarily restricted is maybe something that would be useful.
0: Mm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about violence in your work, uh, mm-hmm. and violence is is often off screen. Um, And, you know, certainly not in the long shot in which, Mm -hmm. um, as I described, you feel every single blow on Cal's um, body. Uh, But for most of your work, it's it's off screen. You know, you've already mentioned the attack of the bookshop owner, Anton, Um, the atrocities that are tried in the court. We don't see um, on screen Uh, and yet these all of your work even um your wonderfully eclectic memoir of experience in in japan as a japanese american japanese for travelers um features elements of sumo and and mma fighting what is your relationship to violence as a writer and what draws you to the brutality of fighting as a sport
1: i mean i think one thing that's interesting hearing you kind of talk about how violence functions in the different books is I realize that it's really moved from something that, as you say, was literally front and center in the subject matter of the novel on every page virtually um, to something that is off the page and is often much more symbolic or institutional in some way. And that's, I think, definitely the case. I think in the long shot, you really have it, um, you have the thing itself. And then I think in intimacies, there is of course the violence that's taking place. There's a mugging and there is a violence in the, in the trial that is related by one of the victims of, of, of the former president of the accused, who's one of the central characters in the book. But there's also the sense of the kind of different kinds of emotional and psychological violence. And I think that shift has come about in part as I've become older. And I think I've really understood the degree to which violence does haunt and restrict our ability to occupy space. So for example, it was in, in New York, as I'm sure you're aware, there was a spate of anti-Asian hate crimes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really quite shocking violence that was taking place, you know, right, right in the streets that we walk. And it was a, it was a very striking thing in that I realized that one of the things that made me very angry about that was that I felt that the city, the public space of the city was being taken away from me in some way that I didn't mm-hmm. feel that I was able to occupy that space. And this was after, you know, a long, a long period during the pandemic, when again, for obvious reasons, we weren't out and about in the same way. And just as things seemed to be opening up this, this spate of hate crimes, Took taking place in this city in the sense that once again it wasn't okay to be out in the street, that we had to retreat into the domestic sphere was was something I felt very, very strongly and so I think the way the specter of violence controls our behavior restricts our range of movement and our sense of freedom is something that I'm always thinking about Um, and I think in the long shot which is, as you've mentioned the most overtly kind of violent of of the novels, there's a kind of sense of dread and a sense that there's no escape um, and a sense that this structure of the fight and the sport, you know, there's of course the violence that is taking place inside the actual ring, but there's also the violence of the spectacle, the fact that it's an organized sport, Mm -hmm. the fact that there are contracts that you are paid to do this, that you have no other way of making a living. There's all these forces that come To bear on the central character and what is happening in that novel, I hope, is gradually the scope of his action is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And his world is being reduced and reduced and reduced until all it really is is that space inside the ring where he has to fight. Um, So, yeah, I think the question of how violence organizes public and private space is very interesting to me. I mean, I, I have, as I said, as I've gotten older, I find myself... Very careful of how I put violence on the page in my fiction. Um, In the case of this novel, for example, in intimacies, I knew that I needed to have some kind of reference to the crimes that the former president, who is the accused in the novel, um, the crimes that he's being accused of. But I was, I knew that I did not want him, that character, to have the position of telling those or delineating or narrating those crimes for precisely, you know, going all the way back to what we were speaking about earlier, but, you know, my experience of listening to Charles Taylor mm-hmm. talking about it, I knew that I wanted it to be authored or spoken by the victim of, of those atrocities rather than the perpetrator. And I think that part of that calibration is thinking about how violence appears in your fiction and who is authoring or who, who is... Who is getting the right to tell that story
0: i wanted to ask just a follow-up question um about the incidents of Asian hate in in New York and around the country, just because I've had a, a conversation with the writer Jack Wang recently, in which he um, described as a as a kind of a, a double trauma of it was both feeling, as you have said, unwelcome in public spaces that he had felt welcome in previously, but then finding that the memory span um, of the United States for hate against um, Asian and Pacific Islander people in the country is so unbelievably short, um, a sort of like micro blink of the eye as opposed to other kinds of um, expressed hate. And I wondered if you had a, um, a similar experience with how quickly that seems to have, have gone out of the, the mindset of both the media and, and the country writ large.
1: Do you mean about the kind of long history of anti-Asian legislation, or do you mean specifically the recent spate of
0: Yeah, I I think the most recent and in the sense of it having been this sort of spectacular and public and um, and violence seemingly with no compunction to just doing it in sort of bright daylight and how that has not been um, the conversation just seemed to deaden and stop, even though that, you know, it's clear it's still going on and has this long um, drawn out history.
1: yeah. I mean, I, I feel that to be the case about so much that happens in this country. You know, I, I feel this country's ability to forget things is almost unparalleled. And it's things that happened, it feels barely even months ago, it feels weeks ago, are already forgotten. Um, and I, I don't have an answer for why that is is the case. I really don't. Um, but certainly the lack of awareness about the long history of of legislation that has put in place anti-Asian sentiment Mm. I I think is of course problematic. People seem to, many people seem to have very little context for what was happening, which was surprising and distressing to me because it's really very much a his part of the history of this country. Um, you know, this is why it's kind of when when the politicians say this isn't who we are. You think, well, that
0: it really is. <laughs> <laughs> if
1: you look at the evidence, it very much is. Um, so, you know, I guess a lot of this is is education, and that is already the question of what is taught and what is not taught in schools mm-hmm. is so fraught and is being chipped away at as we speak. Oh yes. Um. So it, it it's 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 a problem that does not seem to be going going anywhere and seems to be actually rapidly worsening unfortunately.
0: Yes, there's this sense that even in a country with such a, sh- a relatively short history, at least in the colonial occupation of of the United States, this um abbreviated history, we seem to only be able to deal in these sort of snapshots of the now um yes. and i think that actually connects um somewhat to to things uh, going on in intimacies because the narrator really has to battle with herself to not have just these snapshots in the trial at the moment like for example when the president is sort of seeing his supporters in the courtroom and almost conducting them like an orchestra and it's very easy to get drawn into the charisma and that dedication and not have a an expanded vision of the longer history and similarly in a separation it would it's very easy to get sucked into the sort of drama of christopher's um probable assault, and when there's this long, um, less dramatic, but equally, if not more so important history of, of a marriage. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I, I like that paralleling there between the need to see something more than just a snapshot.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think it's true that we are Condition to focus on this, as you say, snapshot of now. But obviously, you can't understand what you're seeing if you don't know the full history of how that is informing the present. And that seems like such a pedantic thing to say, and yet I'm afraid it's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of the the impetus behind writing this book really came from this sense of the disjunction between what as an individual we are able to apprehend and our awareness of much larger narratives that we don't fully understand mm. and the kind of constant as you say struggle to try to see the larger narrative even as we are increasingly kind of drawn into the particular and the individual and the individual experience you know I think as a culture at large we are very very preoccupied with individual experience right now documenting okay. it sharing it um rather than i think i think more than collective experience i don't actually know if that's true i'll take that back but i, I do i do think the kind of focus on on the particularities of your personal life um is, is a large part of how we live right now but at the same time we're very aware that there are history making events taking place everywhere around us of which we understand very very Little We understand maybe a particular narrative that's put forward. We don't necessarily know the depth of that narrative. We see the fragments rather than the entire whole. And, of course, part of that is is something that can be addressed simply by educating yourself or looking further. But I think it is really part of just a condition of being alive right now. Mm-hmm. And so part of what was interesting to me in writing Intimacies was writing a character who is simultaneously trying to apprehend the larger narrative and the complexity of this trial that's happening in her workplace, but is also very preoccupied with her personal life and the question of whether or not this person is going to return her text messages. And that, that absurdity and the bathos and and the almost self-loathing that she starts to experience is, is I think, part of the difficulty of reconciling scale, recon, reconciling your mm. personal experience mm-hmm. in a larger world.
0: And institutions are crucial for understanding scale because they have a a longer than a single lifetime history, yes. and they contain yes. memory. Even though it's you yes. know the people within them are changing, they hold memory, and so yes. I think that's that that to me was something that you were doing with the scalar nature of the the court.
1: Yes, I mean I think the question of institutional memory is really significant, um, both because it. It creates that bridge that we don't necessarily have as individuals and also because it is conditioned by particular contexts that it carries over into the present as well.
0: Before um, I leave you today, I wonder if you'd be willing to recommend us some late summer reading. Anything new and forthcoming that you're excited about um, would be wonderful. And also, given the topic of intimacies, I'd love to know if you're reading any literatures in translation right
1: now. The novel that I've been really recommending to a lot of people over the past year is Anna Seger's Transit, which was translated out of German. Um And do you know this novel? No, I don't. It's really, it's, it's really staggeringly good. It was written during the second world war and it is set in occupied France. And it's about a group of refugees who are trying to leave Marseille. And in order to leave, they need to get the right papers. They need to get the right transit visas in order to, to get out of the country. So it is as unlikely as it sounds. It's a kind of thriller about bureaucracy, Mm. um, and one of the really extraordinary things about the novel to me is that Anna Segers was herself trying to leave France in about, in, in, in I think, 1943 or so. I'm not sure if I have that date right. She did manage to leave. She she got onto a boat and she went got to Mexico. And then while she was in Mexico, she wrote this novel very quickly. And it was published in 1944. Oh, my goodness. And that ability to write with such clarity and... You know, it's a very unsentimental novel. It's it's very, very clear-eyed. And to be able to write within, from within the inside of these events with such clarity is really extraordinary to me. So that is something that I've been recommending to everybody. I also recently um, read the little novellas by Adelbel Stifter, the Austrian writer, the 19th century writer and landscape painter. And one in particular that has really haunted me is... A little book called Rock Crystal, which has a very, very simple story. It's two children who get lost in a snowstorm on Christmas Day, or maybe it's Christmas Eve, um, and it has this kind of almost parable-like or fairy tale-like quality. But the sense of dread and almost relentless pressure that he creates is really extraordinary. It's the kind of book you have to read in one sitting because there's no way to sustain that level of anxiety.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, and
1: the new york reviewer book just put out a new collection of his novellas
0: oh they're so Um, good at finding these these texts
1: yes Um, have you read
0: the ice palace um the norwegian short novel
1: yes somebody else i haven't somebody else actually mentioned that to me vis-a-vis when i was mentioned stifter
0: uh it's it just it has a lot of a lot of parallels to the way you're describing rock crystal
1: Wonderful. I'm gonna look at that. The other thing I'm really excited about, but I haven't read it, is um, Jennifer Croft has just done the new translation of the Olga Tokac's I think her big masterpiece. Um, and I think that is coming out later this year. I but I don't know exactly when and I haven't read it. So I'm very excited.
0: I think you're right. My my colleague who works on, on Polish literature has a new has a new article talking about it and it just seemed amazing and I, I, I can't wait to, to read it.
1: Yeah. I'm really excited to read that one I think that's one of the things I'm looking forward to three all three of those are in translation so
0: well those are fantastic and I'm sure people will be excited to seek out um, things new and in translation and Katie thank you so much for spending time with me today this was a wonderful conversation
1: oh, Chris thank you so much this was really a pleasure <laughs>
0: That's all for the show. My great thanks to Katie Kitamura for her generosity and kindness, and for her wonderful new novel, Intimacies, which is indeed a gift. Next episode features an interview with my very first guest, Eleanor Henderson, whose new memoir, Everything I Have is Yours, will be the most talked about and sought after book of the late summer. You won't want to miss our conversation. Thanks for listening, and do leave a rating and comment on iTunes and Spotify to let other listeners know that the show exists. You will find all of Katie Kitamura's recommended books on our website at burnedbybooks.com. Until next time, I'm Chris Holmes, and this has been Burned by Books.